You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, anymore, this is sort of the rare week where we roll out of a very good UFC on Fox 30 card. Yes. Banging. The kids would say it was banging. Absolutely banging. Is that what the kids say? Do the kids still say banging? They stopped as of this moment. <laughs> Is that just something that two 40-year-old guys on a yeah, podcast? Yeah, the minute the minute you said it, they were like, what well, would, we got to abandon that one. What would the kids say? How am I supposed to know? Was, UFC on Fox 30 was snuffleupagus. Once I find out what they're saying, they stop saying it. That's Kablamo. Okay. Well, coming out of what was a Kablamo fight card for UFC on Fox 30, and we're going to roll right into UFC 227. This coming Saturday in Los Angeles. Why wouldn't we? So it's a busy week. I would say it's an uncharacteristically busy week uh, in the world of, of MMA and, and specifically the UFC. Well, not just that it's busy, because there are often some busy weeks around here, but busy with stuff that seems like it actually matters. And then, wouldn't you know it, right around the same time, some certain people get their legal issues sorted out. Maybe some the future gets mapped out a little bit. All of a sudden... There's some shit going on. You're saying various individuals may have had some of their troubles various, evaporate? Various individuals may have put some legal matters to rest. Let's, let's put it that way. Before we move on, though, before we get into the discussion of various individuals proper, we don't want the people to forget about Fletch. No. Because the Fletch co-main event podcast book club is coming up. It's approximately one month away right now. One month and one day until we record this thing on Friday, August 31st. So if you haven't gotten a physical copy of Fletch yet, which you can do either off the internet or wherever books are sold, if you haven't done that, it's a short wait now before the Kindle version of Fletch is available once again on August 7th. Yeah, should be later this week, something like that. Get the book, read the book, send us your thoughts via the co-main event podcast uh, email, email the podcast option, or you can send it if you happen to be uh, one of our fine Patreon patrons, you can send it to the to the private Patreon email account. We'll get it either way. You can always message us there. Yeah. You don't want to miss Fletch. I'm just telling you. Because once you get on board with that one, it's a wild ride. Uh, the possibility of special guests? High, I'm told. The possibility is high. We've got some irons in the fire, let's just say. Let's just say. We're efforting. Could be having the, ourselves an unexpectedly good time here. Ben, if the kids want to get down with the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon, where do they go? Well, Chad, they go to patreon.com slash co-main event. They can find all kinds of fun stuff on there, including MMA-themed serialized noir fiction, as well as live streaming episodes of this here CME podcast. And who knows what other good content might be popping up on there soon. You just don't know. So you want to support your, your favorite podcast? You get on there, patreon.com slash co-main event. And we will love you forever. And you can't stop us, even with a restraining order. How many patrons we got on there? Uh, a couple dozen? You know, you always... Handful? I don't know why you consist on lowballing us. About 25? We got about 25. 748. 748. Join the club, kids. 
Join the team, as Chris Weidman would say. Sweeping the nation. We got music this week from our guy, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out on Twitter, at The Fifth Element, or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element, or over on SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you know by now, that's the word the with an A. You know who's going to be really excited that I'm over here at your house recording the podcast? Your daughter, because you're going to bring her uh, stuffed Mulan doll home that she left right. over here when we had a barbecue. What was that, last Friday? Friday, we had a barbecue, left this Mulan doll that has suddenly become very important in my daughter's life. And as soon as we got home, she said in a very urgent tone of voice, Oh no! And I thought, "Is this? has she lost a limb? As Did one of her fingers get cut off? And then she, she looked at me with wide eyes and said we left mulan and i was like well all right i can go get it and she was like she stood there like as if waiting like okay are you gonna <laughs> do you need me to get your shoes and i was like on monday i will get it on monday there it is mulan has not been slept with by my daughter for several nights in a row i'll just throw that out there that definitely is something that did not happen Wow. Don't know if you want to keep that under your hat when you take it home. Yeah, we're not going to mention that. We're going to say she's been in a locked safe. <laughs> no one could damage her. In any case, three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, listen, all I'm saying is if I'm Habib Nurmagomedov right now and I'm waiting at a crosswalk for the light to change, if any of the drivers out there looks even a little bit like Dustin Poirier, I'm turning around and going back to the house. And in round number two, is 27 months long enough for Henry Cejudo to close the gap on Demetrius Johnson? And are you willing to pay 65 bucks to find out? And in round number three, hey, did you lose track and forget that the UFC still has a men's bantamweight division? I sure did. Don't worry, though. Tilly Dills and Cody Garbs still hate each other, and they're still fighting for the title. So, doesn't seem like we missed anything. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Wes DeForest, which I assume is not not a real name. Wes DeForest? Wes sounds like, DeForest. Sounds like it's supposed to be one of those things where if you say it all at once really fast, it makes you sound like a fool. Yeah. Well, he's, he's writing in. We're going to dive right into a discussion of various individuals here. You okay. ready for this? I'm, I'm ready for various individuals. Aside from some restitution, community service, and Chuckles anger management class, Conor McGregor is walking these streets as a free man. While we are not surprised, motherfuckers, at the, uh, at the, and that the treatment of McGregor by the courts leaves ample room for discussion of privilege, wealth, and celebrity in America, my question is for the shit-eating wild men out there. Can we trust that the resolution of Conor's criminal case brings to a close his time on walkabout? where one weekend the dude pushes a ref at Bellator and seemingly the next tosses a metal dolly at a bus full of co-workers. What I'm saying is, can McGregor keep his shit together long enough to once again become a force in the UFC? I do wonder, what did Conor McGregor learn from all this? As we talked before about how there seemed to be like an escalating pattern to his behavior, the, you know, the Bellator thing was one where he faced no consequences whatsoever for doing that. Uh, he had the thing where he was chucking cans of monster energy at Nate Diaz. He got, you know, the NSAC took a little bit of his money for that. And then this, the kind of pinnacle of his behavior so far, where he throws a hand truck through the window of a bus and the UFC 
one minute is talking about how disgusting it is, how just absolutely shameful it is, and how terrible. And then after he concludes his, his whole court case, Dana White says, you know, he's been punished a lot. We're good. Which we all knew was going to happen, right. right? Yeah, I like to imagine Dana White sitting at that table in the Barclays Center in Brooklyn immediately following uh, the bus attack where he's like basically cuts a pro wrestling style promo on Conor McGregor about how it's the most disgusting thing that's ever happened in the in the history of the UFC. And I think Brett Okamoto asks him if he still wants to be in business with Conor. And he's like, would you want to? Would you want to? I like to imagine that at that moment, his flip phone vibrates inside the breast pocket of his blazer and he reaches in and flips it open and it's just a text from the UFC accounting department. And then immediately Dana White is like, you know what? Let's see what happens. Let's, <laughs> let's play out the string yeah, here. We'll see what happens. Uh, and obviously there is a lot to talk about in terms like of both how he was treated by the legal system where if you're a rich guy, you can do stuff like this and it's disorderly conduct. Whereas if you're a homeless man raving on the streets of New York City and you pick up a hand truck and throw it through a bus uh, with a bunch of people in it, probably going to be a felony. And then there's a treatment of the UFC, which we always knew was going to look for an excuse to do fucking nothing uh, because they want Conor McGregor back. The question that I wonder and that I talked about a little bit with Danny Downs in our column is I'm torn on it because on one hand I look at him and be like, all right, I'm not surprised. It is still like a hard pill to swallow to be like, well, this guy can do anything he wants, whereas other people could do a fraction of it and get banned for life from the UFC. Uh, so that seems like just kind of shitty. But also, don't we all want to just move on and get him back in the cage, even when we realize that it kind of sucks and that he should not be able to run around and do this stuff that would get other people in serious trouble at the same time, we want to see that damn fight. Yeah. We want to see Conor McGregor versus your boy Nermy. Yeah, it's funny how uh, the bus incident, the dolly throwing incident, has uh, like almost immediately become kind of like a humorous anecdote in the career of Conor McGregor. Like now that the legal thing is over, he'll probably get sued, I would think, by a couple of folks over there uh, with the UFC. Uh, but for the most part, I think we, we are already viewing it as, haha, a crazy thing that happened that one time. Yeah. And so you're right. Like I, Axl Rose breaking all the mirrors in the condo or something. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, I think that the idea that Conor McGregor would have learned something from it is probably far fetched. The one thing I will say, though, that I don't know if it gives me cause to be hopeful, but it, it maybe it's the, the thing about this situation that is different. Despite the fact that Conor McGregor didn't end up suffering any, uh, like real legal consequences per se, he still spent, uh, you know, three, four months in the American legal system, right? Kind of in limbo, even though he probably had, had good reason to believe that he would get away with nothing, uh, but a slap on the wrist. And I would think, especially for a person with the personality of Conor McGregor that, uh, I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb to say he likes to control things. He likes to control the situation that he's in. I think that, you know, suddenly being like the criminal legal system uh, can be a shock to the system because almost immediately re you realize that you don't control it. And even though you are like a celebrity and you enjoy this sort of like quasi notoriety that Conor McGregor uh, enjoys and you have, you've got a legal team that's going to go handle it for you, like it's not a thing that you are in charge of. If that judge wants to be like, I don't care who Conor McGregor is, I'm throwing the book at this dude. Like, he can do that. And there's almost nothing you can do to stop it. So I wonder, 
I don't know for sure. Do you really think that sank in for him, though? Do you think well, he ever considered the possibility that I'll go to jail over this? No, I, I don't know. But it just seems like if anything is going to come along to like uh, make Conor McGregor realize that perhaps his walkabout ought to be over, maybe it's a situation that is essentially the power is taken out of his hands, however short that, that time may be. I See, I think it's more likely that if there's anything that's going to convince him to end the walkabout times... It's going to be having to pay out all this money to all these different motherfuckers. That is also, I mean... From lawyers to fighters to anyone else who may sue you out of this thing. Like, this is going to end up costing a chunk of change. Yeah, and see, just for one, like, a brief moment's freak out. Maybe I'm, I'm taking a more high-minded approach, trying to speak to the Conor McGregor who watched the DVD of The Secret. And okay. you are, you're over there. I'm talking uh, to the Conor McGregor who was trying to stack Diddy bread on top of Diddy bread. Yeah. Because they're going to take some of that Diddy bread out, out of the pile now. There's no way around that. It's going to be a sizable chunk. It's going to make you think, huh, maybe I should get back in there and earn some more money. Maybe there are multiple factors that could make this an uncomfortable experience for Conor McGregor. I don't know. We'll see. And next weekend, he'll... he'll he might slug out Big Dan Mergliata, for all I know. Okay, we might end up talking about this a little later on, but if you're the UFC, do you, now that this is all, you know, at least out of the way, and you can go ahead and think about scheduling a fight, do you try to schedule it as soon as possible, reasoning that the more time you put between now and the fight, the more chance there is that something else is going to happen and completely screw up your plans? Like, do you think, all right, hey, October... We're back at uh, T-Mobile Center in uh, Las Vegas. November, we're back at Madison Square Garden. Do you try to target it for then, or do you think further down the road and go, all right, around end of the year when we have a lot more time to think about like getting out ahead of promotion and really building it into a big thing like the UFC says they want to do whenever Conor McGregor fights, but then you risk, like, I mean, if you put five or six months between now and that fight, there's a lot that could go wrong there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it depends on how the negotiations go. It's not as though the UFC can just push a button and Conor McGregor appears in the cage with Habib Nurmagomedov. Like, if you take Adi Attar at his word following this uh, court appearance where the plea deal was accepted and announced, it sounded like he and the UFC hadn't really talked about all that much, uh, you know, at, at least up to that point. And he, they, he expected negotiations were going to kick into high gear moving forward. And so, like... Negotiations between the UFC and Conor McGregor, despite the fact that both sides, especially the UFC, continues to contend that everything is fine and negotiations always go well, we have reason to believe that they've actually been somewhat fraught. And Conor McGregor, like you said, he's trying to stack that Diddy bread on top of Diddy bread. He has a tendency of uh, getting what he wants for this stuff. And so, like, if you, if the two sides come together and everything is fine and, and we shake hands and sign a deal really quick, maybe you do try to do something in October or November. But I would think, just considering how things have gone between the two sides in the past, end of the year is what I'm expecting. And it seems like the, the, it seems like the soonest you could make it happen. Okay. You, you can go ahead and expect the end of the year. And if you do, then I will go ahead and expect a Thanksgiving Day boat accident. Maybe I mean it depends. What did we? What's you know? What has Conor McGregor learned here? I mean, you can say what you want to about the guy previous in his career, but he hasn't had a tremendous amount of of stuff fall through because of his bad behavior. That's like sort of a recent development. Yeah, Conor, he used to be the guy that the UFC talked about would always show up and fight. Conor McGregor's yacht fired upon while entering Russian waters. That's uh, see, what I'm. I would actually I could believe that. Yeah. 
Next question this week comes to us from Josh Montgomery. He writes, so Joanna, former champion, got back in the win column. The thing is, she still comes off to me as totally delusional about her status in the strawweight division. You are not the greatest nor the queen when you get KO'd and then beat in a rematch by the current champ. And then for her to say that Thug Rose is running or ducking, is running from her or ducking her and to start talking interim belts is just the most batshit crazy statement in a sport full of batshit crazy. Unless one of two things happens, either Rose drops the belt or they both just clean out the division over the course of the next year or so. I cannot see a Joanna title shot at 115 otherwise. She may want to start thinking about 125 if she wants gold again. Either that or she should stop reading the same philosophy books that Tito Ortiz does. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I can't disagree that it seems like the more Yuena and Jacek fixates on this thing with Rose Namajunas, the more cachet with fans she starts to lose. Because people really loved her. She was a, a real darling of the hardcore MMA scene for a long time there. She lost the fights, and I mean, obviously, you're always going to take a little bit of a hit when you, you lose the fights and that aura of invincibility goes away. But her reaction to it, I think, has hurt her more than anything. Because even now, like, he's right. After after this fight, I don't know if you saw her at the press conference where she was just saying, like, you know, she thinks Rose Namajunas isn't really injured, thinks she's running from her, think, and she did call herself the queen. She needs, says Rose Namajunas needs to uh, bow down and show respect to the queen. It's like, she beat you twice. I mean, I know that, like, anything could happen out there, but you had two fights. And one of them was close, one of them was not. She won both of them. How can you keep up with this stuff? How can you keep acting like you didn't really lose? Yeah. No, I agree that the, uh, it seems like the Joanna Jajic shtick is wearing a little thin at this point. Uh, especially considering, like you said, how, uh, kind of beloved she had become among hardcore fans of the sport. And it's like a weird transformation because that doesn't seem like it's her real personality almost. Like you, if you, you know, follow her on social media or like see her, at any time that it's not fight week or immediately before or after a fight, she seems like a completely different person than when she gets maybe into this like competitive athletic zone that she gets into surrounding fights. Uh, she seems still quite likable for the most part uh, in terms of personality. And then, you know, weirdly enough, she shows up for fight week and she flips this like super competitive switch that uh, recently has led her to make these statements that I think a lot of people are getting kind of tired of and like that's a that's kind of a weird thing to me but like maybe a necessary thing for athletes that compete in this sport everybody handles it differently uh so maybe that's a thing that she has to do i also wonder ben do you think that that this sort of like distaste for her would be as widespread if she was a man saying these things like yes you think if she that, was saying this exactly like if she was still like if, if conor mcgregor had lost a couple fights say to Nate Diaz gets choked out or something just by way of crazy example. Uh, and, but continued on basically saying like, I'm the King. Everything runs through me. Nate Diaz don't want to fight me again. Like, what do you think the reaction would be to that? Well, I think let's look at that exact example and tell, because I think that Conor McGregor's reaction to that Nate Diaz loss was to his credit in a lot of ways. Like he showed up there and he talked about, here's what I did poorly. And Nate did well in this fight. Here's, you know, the things that he was able to do that surprised me. You know, I lost. It happens. It's not the first time I've ever lost. It's part of the game. I'll come back from it. And he did. He came back. He insisted on getting that fight again. He got the fight. He won the fight. Uh, I mean, you could argue a little bit about the, the judging in that one, but the same way you could argue a little bit about uh, Rose and uh, Joanna too. But, you know, he came back. He won the fight. And I thought that if he had lost that fight too and then had 
gone on being like, you know, hey, basically I won and I'm the king, I do think people would have been like, come on now. Come on. I don't think that that's necessarily like a gendered thing. I think that that is just like people will get on board with this shtick where you are, you know, talking about how you run everything and you're the king. They can get on board with it for a little while. But you lose two fights to the same person. Then they kind of want you to leave it alone and move on to something else. Or right. at least for like at least acknowledge a little bit like the situation which Yuana does not seem willing to do. Whether that was a majority decision that Conor McGregor won in the second yes, fight with yeah. Nate Diaz, what if he had lost that? Because the situation, the situation with Yoana Jacek is not all that different. She at least publicly firmly believes that she won that the decision and that Rose knows that. And that that's why Rose won't, doesn't want to do it again, rather. That like she got away with one, so she's going to take the, the belt and run. Like, had Conor McGregor lost that majority decision to Nate Diaz and then continued to, like, stomp around saying that he won and he was still going to get everything that he wanted, I'm just saying I think that the reaction would be different. Well, I think, for one thing, Nate Diaz would be like, you want to do that? You want to pay me a third time for that fight? Sure. Go ahead. Let's do it. But I also think there's no one who wants that third Rose Namajunas Yen Jacek fight right now. Nobody wants that. That's not, like, something where everybody is saying, like, oh, yeah, I know. You're right. Let's do it. Let's do it again, again. And Rose Namajunas is out here being the lone person avoiding it. I don't think the UFC wants to make that. Like, it's never happened where in the UFC where you lose two title fights to the same champion and then you get a third one. That's never happened with title fights in the UFC. So it's weird for her to think that, like, the only reason it wouldn't be happening is because Rose Namajunas is running away from her. People, it's already hard to get people on board with, like, immediate rematch kind of stuff. You lose two in a row to the champion... You need to go do something else. The champion needs to go do something else. It's going to be hard for you to get a, another shot at that same champion. The best you can hope for uh, is, you know, like Josh Montgomery says, is either there's a there's turnover at the top, Rose drops it to somebody else, or if you're Joanna, you go up to 125. Because if you hang out there at 115, it's going to take an awful lot. There's going to have to be no other options, or somebody pulls out last minute and they have to call you. Those are kind of your only hope there. Next question this week comes to us from Darling Joe. He writes, "Okay, guys, Jose Aldo returned on Saturday and crushed Jeremy Stevens. That's G-E-R-M-Y in the email. I like email. that. I kind of like that. Jeremy Stevens with a body shot. It was pretty fucking glorious, if you ask me. Thing is, what do you do with Aldo now? He can't really fight Max again, can he? He can't really fight Frankie again, can he? The guy says he wants another run at the title, but what fights are there for him that might get him back to that status? I think this is a great question, Ben, and I think like even more maybe then Joanna Jacek, uh, Jose Aldo getting this body shot win over Jeremy Stevens creates a weird situation for him because what do you do with the guy now? It's, uh, you know, we had kind of written him off in a lot of ways after his back-to-back losses to, to Max Holloway and after the 13-second uh, knockout at the hands of Conor McGregor. But now he comes back, you know, didn't look terrible in those Holloway fights, but I think it's just a time now where Max is better. There's sort of a new generation of fighters that maybe is a little better uh, than the guys we had seen before. But then Jose Aldo out here against Jeremy Stevens again, looking very capable, uh, and ends up winning what was a first round TKO via body shots. Uh, and again, one of those things where you hit a guy in the liver and he just for like one second, it's like if he never moved again, he would be fine. Right? If he could just <laughs> he never stay had to still yeah. for the rest of his life, he would be okay. Well, credit but, to Jeremy Stevens for he tried to battle through it. Even after he got dropped, you could see him trying to get, but it was just like, he took one step and he was like, no, nope, that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, maybe if you gave him 12 hours, if he could get a 12 hour timeout, then he might be able to continue on with that fight. And he was doing pretty well, honestly, up until that point in the fight. 
But yeah, it's true because on one hand, Jose Aldo was in a similar situation, lost twice to the same champion, uh, and lost a little more emphatically in the second one than Yoanny and Jacek did in her second one. But then his return, like he needed a victory, she needed a victory, and his was a lot more uh, like clear cut. Like Yoanny and Jacek won that decision over Tisha Torres, but it wasn't like she absolutely demolished her. He went out there against a tough guy and Jeremy Stevens, who'd been kind of streaking up the ranks, and just wrecked him. That that body shot. I mean, if you go back and you you can listen to it. The UFC on Fox tweeted out a, a clip of it, and you can turn up the speakers and listen to it, and it just it makes you sick a little bit just listening to it. Uh, and it does remind you, I think, that Jose Aldo is still one of the best dudes in that division, and yet I don't have any clue what you really do with him because if you start putting him up against the other people who you think might be up and coming contenders. Then you risk having a situation where Jose Aldo just knocks off one contender after another and people still aren't any more interested in seeing a third fight between him and Max Holloway. Like, a part of me would kind of love to see him go up and wait. The yeah. same thing as, I mean, especially, he's always had a really difficult cut to featherweight. Maybe you, you take that out of it and we put him up against somebody who's not an absolute physical monster at 155 just to see how it goes. And maybe there's a lot of fun to be had up there. I like that you brought that up because I'm going to lay this idea on you. That my guy Tim at the gym when I was down there today laid on me. Wait a minute. You're going to repeat just ideas you heard that guys yeah. are just saying at the gym. Yeah, we were talking about this fight, and he, he came up with what I think is a great idea for Jose Aldo. Is this at your CrossFit gym, by yep. the way? Yeah. Was over you're, there so doing... you're over there just to set the scene for everybody. You're you're in the middle of some box jumps. No, we were doing clean and jerks today. Of course, of course you were. Of course you were. And then your guy says, hey, Chad. Mm -hmm. Tim. How about this? And that this is what? He's in, Tim is in tremendous physical condition. Okay. All right. So I'm sure that's important to know. I'm going to lay this on you. Anthony Pettis. Huh. Because remember, huh. back when Anthony Pettis was the 155 pound champ and Jose Aldo was the featherweight fight champ, this was like the super fight that they floated. Right. It might have even been during the year of the super fight. Right. Remember that? Back when we were talking to George St. Pierre Anderson yeah. Silva. And it was like, yeah, let's do Jose Aldo versus Anthony Pettis. And for a variety of reasons, it never happened. What about now? And it would be in keeping with the weird sort of Twilight Zone wish fulfillment that we often get in MMA where we want something, we don't get it when we want it, but we do get it when it's kind of a sad, pale imitation of itself. Yeah, but it'd still be a fun fight. <laughs> right? would, I would watch, especially, you know, Anthony Pettis is coming off that win. Uh, he looks like he kind of found a little bit of the old groove back. Jose Aldo's coming off this win. Yeah, hey, I would not say no to that at all. What about Chad Mendez? If we're staying home at 145. Huh. I mean, he just came back. He looked good in that win over Miles Jury. Has kind of a getting the band back together kind of feel <laughs> it to does? it. It does, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, I mean, Chad Mendez, he might, like, he might like to have a little shot of redemption against Jose Aldo, right? Yeah. No, I bet he'd be down. Okay. Down to clown. Hey, now that you say it, I, those are at least two good ideas for Jose Aldo. I still think Anthony Pettis is a great idea. Anyway, this question comes to us from Michael Ballack. He writes, as a shit-eating wild man, it is not very often that the wind of a fighter I love makes me sad. However, that is exactly what happened. As I streamed via the official shit-eating shit -eating wild man app, the fight between 51-year-old Henzo Gracie and y Yuki Kondo, 43, by the way. After doing their best Ngano versus Lewis impression in the first round, Henzo sank a rear naked choke early in the second. Surely at this point, I should simply have felt relief that it was over with and neither elder statesman of MMA took any significant damage. What I felt instead was incredible sadness that this decisive finish in an otherwise abysmal fight will convince the, the again 51-year-old Henzo 
that he should continue on with his martial times. What the fuck are we doing here? Hanzo slash one slash MMA God slash anyone. First of all, I want to point out that did you see the clip? Uh, I saw it via Twitter where as Henzo and Yuki Kondo come together for the instructions before the fight, somebody in the cl- in the crowd can clearly be heard to yell out, 51, motherfucker! I assume someone from the gym, right? Someone from Henzo's place over there in New York City who made the trip? <laughs> you you would hope so. That's how your boy should represent you, is come out there and point out to everyone just how fucking old you are and still out here doing it. And I get what he's saying here, that, like, okay, the win is going to convince you, you still got it, you can still go out there and do some damage, but I don't really have a problem with it if it's going to be against other dudes around the same age, other guys in the master's division. Senior circuit. Yeah. I mean, if we start putting Henzo up against, like, some 28-year-old killer, just for the sake of getting a little bit of the name value to rub off, like, then, okay, I'm going to start giving the old side eye to 1FC, uh, but... If, if it's fun fights like this every once in a while, I don't know if Henzo really wants to fight three times a year. I, I can I can support it. Yeah, as long as uh, he's not getting super badly beat up, or that nobody's sustaining all that much trauma, which certainly in this fight, it didn't really seem like that happened. Henzo went out there with a, a display of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, got the win. There you go. We all like Henzo. High five. 51, motherfucker. On yeah. On the next. Right? Yeah. I don't have a problem with it. Maybe I'm just making maybe I'm making a different rule for Henzo Gracie than I would make for Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz, but yeah, I don't I'm not wasting a lot of time worrying about it. Yeah, well, and maybe we start to get other old uh, MMA coaches back in action, you know? What's Frank Shamrock doing? What's Ricardo Laborio doing? Well, I was going to say Frank Shamrock appears to be on social media a lot. <laughs> okay. I I don't follow Ricardo Laborio, so I'm not totally sure. I don't know if he even has a Twitter account. I mean, they got Yuki Kondo out of suspended animation for this thing, right? Like, I assume, you know, what's the king of the streets doing? Marco Huas at? I mean, I think you might have a weight class problem. You start thinking about Henzo Gracie versus Marco Huas. Well, now, I mean, we don't know at this point. Maybe Marco Huas is into clean living. Maybe he's been eating nothing but uh, plant matter and doing yoga. Well, Walking around 165. He's still... Henzo might be a few sheet cakes away from meeting Marco Hua somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Last question of the week comes to us from Kenny J. He writes, With all the interim nonsense these days, it makes me wonder if the boxing version of world titles makes more sense. It's definitely not implemented well, but having a third party oversee titles makes sense. When a corporation controls the belts, it's only ever a corporate trophy. There was always a certain level of of absurdity with title fights, but now they're just making up belts and taking them away at whim, which really illustrates how little they actually represent who is the best. At the very least, people shouldn't get caught up in who deserves a shot because the belt wasn't ever designed to reward meritocracy. What do you guys think? Ben, how about this idea from Kenny J that there ought to be like a third party out here awarding belts? Kind of sounds like we're talking about the Whamma title again, doesn't it? It does, doesn't, doesn't it? it? Remember does. the days of the Whamma title? Yeah, I think there was only one, right? No, there was a... Well, Fedor had the Whamma Fedor, heavyweight title. Wasn't the Shinya Aoki the Whamma oh, lightweight You're champion? right. You're right. And may still be, as far as I know. <laughs> For people who did not enter their shit-eating wild man phase at that point, this was around like 2009-ish, right? 2009, 2000... Maybe 2008? Uh, because I think... Thereabouts. Yeah. Where the WAMA was like the World Association of Mixed Martial Arts or something. And it was supposed to be like kind of the thing where they would pull, they would take like consensus rankings from a bunch of websites 
and see like who the journalist thought was the best, all that kind of stuff, and then create just kind of like this independently floating title that could be up for grabs conceivably in any promotion that would represent like kind of a true champion kind of thing. But obviously, as with anything of that nature, there began to be some serious problems about exactly how you figured it out and how how the rankings got organized and it seemed like if you were in a position to actually recognize the Whamma title, you were more likely to get a chance to maybe fight for one, and it did not last that long. But I still think the idea has some merit, because you're right, referring to it as like the UFC title is like a corporate trophy, that has never felt more apt than it does, right? Especially when you look at what happened with the Colby Covington thing, and or even the Tony Ferguson thing, where you get an interim title, and then you're not available to fight exactly when they want you to, or something happens... Boom, you don't have an interim title anymore. Yeah. Screw you. It doesn't mean we were just using it to sell fights. Yeah, I actually don't hate this idea all that much. Like, I think it would, it would be cool if there was some kind of, uh, you know, uh, objective, like self-contained group that could, uh, award titles in a way that felt like a little bit more meaningful and real than just like, you know, some kind of, uh, consensus MMA rankings. Perhaps uh, the, like a journalist association, for instance? Right. The, the, the problem I was going to say is that I don't know who would do that in any way that would be widely recognized and not just mocked by everyone. Yeah. Uh, which the Whamma titles kind of were yeah. back in the day, especially because the Whamma heavyweight title kind of felt like they made it up so Fedor could have a belt to bring with him uh, to affliction in places like that. Uh, so it's hard to know who would do it. And like uh, the the current universe of mixed martial arts certainly is is not – inclined to recognize such a thing i don't think especially not like you know the ufc isn't going to be like well and here comes heavyweight champion daniel cormier who's also the consensus whamma part two heavyweight champ right? yeah never in a million years would the ufc say the name of someone else's title on their broadcast unless it's to introduce someone as the former strike force heavyweight yeah champion. yeah if, if they bought your company and then they can yes. use it to help sell if your name is fight. on the styrofoam tombstone <laughs> yes. in dana white's office then maybe yeah yeah, but then, I mean, if the Police Gazette can have a champion. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like an old school idea in in a lot of ways that I don't totally hate. Uh, I don't hate it in theory, but in practice, I think there's a lot of pitfalls, potentially. Yeah, well, and I would think the greatest pitfall is that if it's not a body that has any say in what fights actually get made, it's like you could say, all right, hey, we recognize this person as the champion, but then you don't get to decide who that person defends the title against right. which is a little different than the boxing uh you know it's some of those where it can be like okay here's a mandatory title defense and if you don't fight that one then you don't have that title anymore but the way mma works you would never be able to be like okay daniel cormier must defend his you know whamma title against this person the ufc is just going to do whatever it wants to and then what are you going to do yeah that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And hell, if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, the last time we talked about Dustin Poirier on the podcast, I feel like I admitted that it had taken me a while to come around to the awesomeness of the diamond. But at this point, I don't know that anyone can doubt the guy after he goes out there, defeats Eddie Alvarez by second round TKO in the main event of UFC on Fox 30. Uh, That brings Dustin Poirier's official win streak to three in a row-ish, four in a row if you want to... uh, exclude the no contest to Eddie Alvarez back there at UFC 211 in May of 2017. This is a big win, obviously, for Dustin Poirier, arguably the biggest biggest of his career. And am I wrong in saying that the thing he gets for it, Ben, is to wait around and see if Habib Nurmagomedov gets injured and he might step in against Conor McGregor? Yes, that's that's what he's earned. That's the prize here. Well, which is not necessarily a bad prize. No. Because there is a pretty decent chance of that happening, right? I mean... If you look at Khabib Nurmagomedov's history, it's not unheard of. Like, it's not like a totally crazy idea that maybe either he will get injured and have to pull out of that fight, or that after Conor McGregor's yacht is fired upon by Russian naval uh, authorities, one way or another, maybe Dustin Poirier's phone rings. So what I'm doing right now if I'm Dustin Poirier is I'm keeping myself in the news by popping up every once in a while to talk some shit. I'm reminding everybody of all these great wins I've had. Uh, and I'm staying in shape. And I'm keeping the phone charged. Yeah. I'm not running it all the way down into the red playing Candy Crush because that's that's when uh, Sean Shelby's going to call you. Am I also right in saying that a Habib Nurmagomedov injury is the only way Dustin Poirier probably gets a rematch with Conor McGregor, like ever? Well, yeah, probably. Because if in my mind brain, if I play this out in the event of a Conor McGregor victory over Habib Nurmagomedov, it's not as though new champ, new old champ at 155 pounds, Conor McGregor is suddenly going to be like, bring on the number yeah. one contender. Line them up. I'm ready to go, ready to take on whoever is the best. Give me one through three in 2019. That's all I want. George St. Pierre, nah. Nate Diaz, nah. Just give me give me all the contenders who matter at lightweight so I can clean out that division in an orderly fashion just to establish my dominance as lightweight champ. How are you thinking of Dustin Poirier now? Three straight wins, like I said, all of them against quality opponents, Anthony Pettis, Justin Gaethje, and now Eddie Alvarez. Uh, in what was a uh, you know a, a good a good fight and a good display that I hope we talk about in a minute here, uh, Dustin Poirier, twenty nine years old still, which is crazy to think about since he's especially since he's out there in the cage after this one is over, talking about how he has like sixty nine fights or whatever that a lot of them aren't his, on his record. How have you begun to think about Dustin Poirier, a guy that was maybe at one time regarded as a middle of the pack talent? Yeah, it is strange because when you look at him now, especially at lightweight. He not only seems like he is more resilient, like he seems uh, smarter and just a like when you look at the the finish of that Eddie Alvarez fight, it was kind of exactly what he said he was going to do, that he was not going to go out there and get uh, panicked or carried away trying to finish him. And he didn't. He he that, that finishing sequence there was both like brutal, but also really patient and uh I think showed like a lot of maturity on his part. Then again, he is also out there jumping into guillotines, even when his cornerman Mike Brown, as he says, is telling him to stop jumping into guillotines. And, and his response is F you, which is kind of rad. But uh, I think when I see him out there against somebody like Eddie Alvarez uh, and really in the second fight kind of putting a stamp on it, that's when I start to think, 
you know, maybe any given night, Dustin Poirier is a problem for everybody in this division. Yeah, let's say this Habib Nurmagomedov and or Conor McGregor matchup doesn't happen for Dustin Poirier. Uh, people have talked about Tony Ferguson. Is he still an interim champ, or did we take away his interim championship? Took it away. Okay, so when he couldn't fight, took it away. Tripped so, on a cord, gone. There's still, at least in theory, opportunity or room for that fight, I would think. Dustin Poirier against uh, El Kakui, although maybe to his credit right now, since we're still waiting to see how this stuff plays out, sounded like to me like Dustin Poirier kind of wanted to downplay that possibility because obviously he's got, in his own mind, bigger fish to fry, although I don't think that's a terrible fight. Uh, depending on how everything plays out. 12 to 6 elbows. Yeah. Eddie Alvarez arguably lost this fight because of one. Well, I don't know if he lost the fight because he of got, one. He was in a very dominant position. Yeah, I mean, okay, he, he was in a dominant position, but it wasn't like he was raining down hellfire upon Dustin Poirier. I mean, it was the reason he went to that elbow was because he didn't have a whole lot of great striking options. Right. He had to keep his body close to try to... Uh, pin Poirier's head and upper body up against the cage. Uh, he had his legs kind of trapped in that like modified mount kind of thing, and his corner then suggesting, "Hey, Eddie, how about an elbow?" And there were there weren't a whole lot of places where he could get the space without uh, giving Dustin Poirier an opportunity. So he just came right down on it on the trap. Right. The unfortunate thing about it is it's the one elbow that is illegal regardless of where it lands, just by trajectory, and kind of silly in that situation, especially because it's just like you have to almost be trying to throw that one illegal elbow, any other slight alteration of the angle and you're fine. Yeah. And he throws the one you can't throw after that. What happened in the last fight was he throws the very illegal knee that ended the fight. Yeah. Well, That's so where it gets hard to sympathy for him again. Suffice to say, we won't, we'll, we, we shall never know what might've happened had that elbow not been thrown uh, or had what, referee Mark Goddard, is that who we're dealing with here, steps in and uh, stands up the fighters shortly thereafter. Uh, Dustin Poirier wins by TKO. Uh, Eddie Alvarez, is he in a tough position here now, considering how things have gone for him? A uh, real roller coaster ride since coming into the UFC. Obviously, you know, uh, lost his debut to Donald Cerrone, but then in short order became UFC lightweight champion, defeat Rafael Dos Anjos. Uh, back in July of, of 2016. But since then, he's got the loss to Conor McGregor, uh, where he really got worked uh, at UFC 205. And then no contest against Dustin Poirier, win over Dustin Gaethje, lost to Dustin Poirier. Uh, I guess the same question that I posed to you about Dustin Poirier, where at one point he seemed like a middle-of-the-pack talent, and now we are thinking him of him as potentially a, a you know championship material Eddie Alvarez trending the other direction, or do we, is he still just a tough, tough guy that could beat anybody on any given night? Well, I think he's an exciting enough fighter and personality that it's not like people will completely lose interest in seeing Eddie Alvarez fight. But this does put up a further roadblock between you and a like a major big time fight if you're Eddie Alvarez. Yeah. As we talked about, like Dustin Poirier winning the title of waiting for Nurmi to fall out of the fight, Eddie Alvarez doesn't even get that. You know, he gets the opportunity to kind of be the guy the UFC calls when, hey, we've got somebody else who's a fun, exciting action fighter. We want the two of you to just carve each other up uh, with chainsaws on network TV or something. Yeah. How about that, Eddie? Well, another interesting aspect of this is that it's the last fight on Eddie Alvarez's contract, or at least the reports say it's the last fight. Fights on the last fight on Eddie Alvarez's contract. Uh, and as we know, he's not a guy that's that's afraid to go fight other places. He's like, also not afraid to talk about how everybody's underpaid. 
That's true. That's true. So uh, that might be an interesting contract negotiation to be a, a fly on the wall for there for Eddie Alvarez. Uh, maybe he maybe he pops back up working for his guy Scotty Coker. Now how about in that? Bellator. Wouldn't that be something? Or he goes over and fights Henzo Gracie. Okay, now we're talking about dangerous stuff. We just talked about how <laughs> we didn't want that to happen. That was the main point of that conversation. You know, just saying. All right, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number two. Sure. Ben, have you seen the fallout from the Adam Waite title fight between Mina Grusander and Jin Yu Frey at uh, Invicta FC 30? I have not. Probably nailed those names. Yeah. Uh, Frey, or Fry, depending on how you want to pronounce it, ended up winning by unanimous decision. But in the wake of the fight, her husband, husband Douglas Frey, went on record accusing her opponent, Grusander, of employing, quote, the, the stinky strategy. Oh, no. Basically, he said she showed up to the fight smelling really, really bad. Huh. Uh, okay. And this from a story by Alexander K. Lee over at MMA Fighting, the quote, Grusander was the most disgusting smelling person I've ever been around. And he implied that she intentionally used poor hygiene as a tactic to distract Fry and gain the advantage in the fight. I say that's legit. Are you fucking kidding me? Somewhere Matt Lindland is so happy right now. <laughs> I the, say you ought to be able to do that. The lost art of the stinky strategy is back. Did you ever read uh, The Professional by W.C. Hines? Old boxing novel? I think I did a long time ago. And in it, one guy tells a story about how he defeated somebody by spending a couple weeks before the fight eating nothing but garlic. So that then when there this guy go. was an infighter and they'd kind of try to get in there close, but then he didn't want to. The stinky strategy. The stinky strategy. You fucking kidding me? Well, Chad, have you been keeping an eye on Conor McGregor's Instagram lately? How what am I saying? You, of course you have. How could you not? Of course you have. I love luxury items. Yeah. Well, it's gotten, it's gotten interesting. Um, there was one... Like yesterday, where he posts one where it seems to uh, – there's a picture where it seems to be him in a club. Uh, he's got his T-shirt pulled over his head. You can tell it's him because of the tattoos. Uh, and he seems to be uh, miming like gun motions. And the caption is, click, clack, I'm back. And you're like, okay. Then you look at the one before that where he and John Jones are apparently talking back and forth in the comments – there's a video of him, you know, just bossing up out on these streets. But then there is a comment from John Jones and uh, where J John Jones says, congratulations on being set free from all that court shit. Definitely know the feeling. To which Conor McGregor replies, staunch animal, John boy. I'm in Albuquerque tonight. If you out, bro, hit me up. Rocket juice ring Brandau. What? Are you fucking you sure that's the real Connor? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Uh, don't let these two get together. That, I mean, I know that we all had fun when it was like the Mike Perry and John Jones thing. And we we're like, okay, we want to fight past you out of that. Like, let's see. Kind of, and there's fun and then there's foolish. Yeah. Like, don't get those two together. Not now. Mm -hmm. Not when everybody's so close to putting all the stuff behind them. Just don't, don't get them together and, and, test fate that way you know had i known about those instagram posts ben i may not have launched into that uh, soliloquy earlier in the show about how maybe conor mcgregor might have learned something from this run-in with the criminal justice system and he learned something all right so Click, it might clack, not, i'm back might not be the something you think it was <sighs> that's gonna do it for round number one we'll be right back with round number two
Well, Chad, Demetrius Johnson and Henry Cejudo are going to do it again, brother, I guess. Yeah. Because what else are we supposed to do at this point? 27 months ago, they did it the first time. Now, your UFC flyweight champion, Demetrius Johnson, going to take on the messenger, Henry Cejudo. The messenger. Despite just kind of wrecking him the last time, he's not at all competitive. Henry Cejudo bounced back since then. Do you have any reason to think that this fight is going to be any stiffer a test for Mighty Mouse? Not really, although, uh, what was it? Was it the last fight against Sergio Pettis at UFC 218 where Henry Cejudo, well, kind of against Wilson Hayes, the, the fight before that also, but Cejudo was kind of showing off a new style, particularly a new striking style. Uh, he looked more Conor McGregor-ish uh, with more of a, like a wide-open karate guy, uh, traditional martial arts horse stance uh and you know worked great against those two guys beat haste by uh second round tko beat sergio pettis by unanimous decision but nobody is out here trying to say he's going to be able to do that to great effect against demetrius mighty mouse johnson right yeah i have a hard time seeing it because before it was like okay what he's going to do is he's going to bring this next level wrestling game to demetrius johnson and that's what's going to throw him off and then that did not happen at all. It's harder for me to buy at this point that there's any one area where you're just going to exploit yeah. like a massive advantage over Demetrius. It doesn't seem like you can do it that way. It seems like you've got to kind of be able to match him everywhere because he's just so good that there's no one area where you'll be able to make sure the fight just stays there and you're able to just do your thing against him. Like he may be the one fighter in MMA where it doesn't matter what your thing is. You can't just have that one thing. Yeah. Uh, 14 wins in a row for Demetrius Johnson, going for his 12th consecutive UFC title defense, I believe. Uh, in some ways, I guess if, you, if you're going to give a sales pitch for this fight, I guess you say that in terms of sheer athleticism, Henry Cejudo, if anybody is going to challenge Demetrius Johnson, Henry Cejudo is probably the guy because he comes in uh, with a near peerless amateur wrestler background, clearly a terrific athlete, has not been an MMA fighter for all that long, uh, has only been in the UFC since 2014. His two career losses are the split decision of Joseph Benavidez and the first or second round, no, I'm sorry, first round TKO loss to uh, Demetrius Johnson. And that's about as far as I can go. Although, like, if anybody was going to shock the world and beat Demetrius Johnson, it, it would be Senator Henry Cejudo, I would think. Really? Yeah, like, I mean, who else is even out there in the men's 125-pound division that you think is going to have a chance to stop Demetrius Johnson? Nobody. Right. But I don't... And that Probably doesn't... not Henry Cejudo either. The, yeah, this, that's my point. Is that if we're drawing short straws here... Henry Cejudo... The longest short straw is probably Henry, Henry Cejudo. Okay, fine. The, the best bad chance probably belongs to Henry Cejudo. And who knows? I mean, anybody can go out there and maybe you land one good punch and it changes everything... Then again, maybe he just puts you in the clinch and knees you into the knees you the body again until you crumple up, and we all go, "Yeah, why did we think that this would be any different?" Yeah. Uh, you me, see the odds on this one? No. I, well, yeah, no. I looked at him yesterday. It was like Henry Cejudo was like almost four to one as an underdog. It was like five to one. Okay. Or no, Henry Cejudo about four to one underdog. Right. Demetrius Johnson five to one as a favorite. Yeah. 
which for a Demetrius Johnson fight, especially considering that this is a rematch, uh, it's about where you're at, I guess. And those aren't crazy numbers. Let's skip ahead to the part where Demetrius Johnson wins this fight. Okay. <laughs> and then we stand there afterwards going, all right, now what? Because that's what we keep doing. And before it was like, okay, he wanted to set this title defense record, did it, okay, now what? Uh, doesn't want to go up and wait, we can't get that, or at least he doesn't want to go up and wait for the money the UFC is offering, or uh, the deal the UFC is offering, so then we do set Henry Cejudo again. He beats him again, and then, man, even I, who have been very supportive of Demetrius Johnson's uh, desire to just stay home in his one weight class and thoroughly, completely dominate it, even I'm going to start to lose my patience with it a little bit. Because there's just, no- there's just nothing left to do. Go up and wait at that point. Please. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, maybe it's fitting that the, the Tilly Dills-Cody Garbrandt fight is the main event on the same pay-per-view where Demetrius Johnson and Henry Cejudo are going to be the co-main. Because if if you start scra- scratching the dirt for Demetrius Johnson matchups, I still feel like uh, TJ uh, Dillashaw is about as good as you're going to get, especially if he remains the champion and you can book some kind of super fight, low-weight super fight between those two guys. Kind of the only thing I can think of that makes any sense. I mean, I guess you could have him fight Cody Garbrandt also if 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 Garbrandt beats Dillashaw. Uh, but yeah, we're in kind of a tough spot here with Demetrius Johnson going door to door, ringing ringing doorbells, asking if there's a 125 man 125 pound man available at the home. And people are back there stuffing cookies in their mouth <laughs> as quickly as they can, trying to get to 127. Uh, in case you forgot how active Demetrius Johnson generally has been as a UFC champion, he squeezed in three fights since the last time he beat Henry Cejudo. Remember, we had him fight Tim Elliott, right? Because even back then we were like, Yeah, what do we do? I don't know. Wilson Hayes and then Ray Borg with the, uh, the suplex armbar at UFC 215. But it's been about nine months since the last time Demetrius Johnson fought. This will be his first fight of 2018. Are we hoping for some ring rust? Well, for Henry Cejudo? Man. Nine months? Just huh? grasping at any short straw you I'm can just, find, huh? I'm trying to make a case here. Just trying to have a conversation about Demetrius Johnson versus Henry Cejudo, too. Yeah, well, I mean, sure. Lost his gold medal in a fire, as I understand. Pretty, Henry Cejudo, pretty, yeah? Yeah, pretty recently, right? Had to jump out a window or something like That's that? That's right. And kind of injured himself jumping out a window, from what I heard. Yeah. Didn't didn't stop him from coming back and whipping a couple guys' asses, though. So you're telling yourself that he's been baptized by fire? <laughs> Literally well, was, baptized by fire? I was going to go say maybe we're hoping Demetrius Johnson kind of starts getting old, but he's younger than Henry Cejudo. So that that couldn't be a thing. So Gypsy curse? Gypsy curse. There you go. You Maybe Henry Cejudo went to, he, he found himself a gypsy? And was like, "Listen, I'll uh, I'll promise you my firstborn son or something if you if you make this happen for me." Demetrius Johnson runs afoul of some kind of magician out there in Seattle. There you go. Magicians just walking the streets out there, Jet City. Maybe Demetrius Johnson has a uh, heart defect he doesn't know about yet. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. He, he doesn't have those powders that Chris Lieben has taken advantage of. There's a lot of a lot of winning strategies here that I can see we're laying out. Now, I mean, now you've convinced me. We're almost jinxing it at this point. I'm expecting for us to have to do a show on Monday talking about new men's flyweight champion Henry Cejudo. Henry Cejudo via knockout round one heart defect. 
<laughs> Anything else you want to say about this fight? Not you want to move on to uh, Tilly Dills versus uh, Cody Garbs? Yeah, that one. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Speaking of scratching around in the dirt for a matchup, TJ Dillashaw and Cody Garbrandt are also doing it again, brother. A pair of rematches here atop UFC 227. This one for the men's bantamweight title. Neither of these guys have fought since the last time uh, they went after it when TJ Dillashaw uh, rested the title away from Cody Garbrandt. What's your level of hype here, man? How hype are you for this fight? Because... I mean, I don't think there's any arguing that it's going to be awesome. It's going to be an awesome fight where two guys try to kill each other, and that's what we're here for. But we also just saw it. Yeah, but I still am pretty hyped for it, if only because the way it went down last time really makes it pretty tough for me to say I know how it's going to go down this time. No, it seems like if you had these guys fight 100 times, they might split 50 of them. Yeah. Maybe a 50-50 split. Yeah, I mean, because TJ Dillashaw almost gets knocked out, just kind of saved by the belt, and comes back. Knocks out Cody Garbrandt. It's just a coin flip. So that, I, like I was talking about this with somebody I was doing an interview with a while back with some fighter. And he was just like, who do you think is going to win this one? And I was like, honestly, I have no idea. And he was like, me neither. It's so exciting. And I was like, okay, yeah. Like, I can I can get behind that as your sales pitch for this fight. That like, hey, they genuinely don't like each other. They both can knock each other out. And maybe they'll both come close before somebody finally wins. Yeah. Uh, that... That feels like a kind of fight that I will watch. Yeah. Uh, we got a real good chance here also, I think, for Tyler Jeffrey Dillashaw to go out there and prove how good he is. Because you'll recall, uh, he's a split decision loss to Dominic Cruz and a split decision loss against Rafael Asuncao away from being undefeated since 2011 when he lost to John Dodson uh, at the end of The Ultimate Fighter. Uh, you remember, you want to know, you know, who the, remember who the coaches were when... Uh, when John Dodson and T.J. Dillashaw were on the Ultimate Fighter back in 2011, was it Mayhem Miller or Michael Bisping? It was. Aha! How's that for a, a time capsule? Yeah. For you. And Diego Brandau won the other one. That one, right? He won the other the other division. I will take your word for it. <laughs> but T.J. Dillashaw loses in the finale to John Dodson, but has since all but run the damn table, except for those two split decision losses. Uh, he's a guy that we don't think about as being that good. But if he goes out there and knocks out Cody Garbrandt again, and maybe even does it in a way that, that makes it seem more definitive, like these two guys would not split 50-50 if you had him fight 100 times. You mean if he does not almost get slept himself before he does it? Right. Like, do we? is there any way that we start to think of TJ Dillashaw as being, you know, a Demetrius Johnson-style talent? Well, I think he's a long way from that, just because... One of the things that makes Demetrius Johnson who he is is the longevity of like, the, the complete perfection of it along the way. But I do think you're right that he felt like, you know, everybody loved Dominic Cruz and then we're super hyped to see him come back. And then when Cody Garbrandt beat Dominic Cruz, it's like, okay, Cody Garbrandt is the new hotness in the division and everybody's thinking like he's going to hold it down for a long time. And TJ Dillashaw kind of felt like the 
barely talked about third place guy in there. And you're right that if he goes out there and if he can actually make it a little more dominant this time and make it very clear that, hey, he's better than, than Cody Garbrandt, then I think not only him winning that fight, but also the scope of his ambition. He keeps talking about how he wants that Demetrius Johnson fight. I think people really get excited about that kind of thing. The guy who's like, all right, I I settled this matter in my own division. Now I'm going hunting for the other guy everybody says is the best. Uh, I think that could change people's minds really quickly. Yeah. How far do you think that, that a Demetrius Johnson, TJ Dillashaw match would go in terms of cementing either guy's uh, legacy? Or how far would it even penetrate beyond the hardcore MMA bubble? Because I agree with you, for guys like us and people who are listening to this podcast, I think TJ Dillashaw versus Demetrius Johnson is one of those sort of like gold standard dream fights in the way that Steve Miocic against Daniel Cormier was uh, just a few events ago. But at the same time, we're coming off this UFC on Fox 30 card, which looked good on paper and was awesome in practice and still scored the lowest rating in the history of that series in a way that like, uh, you know, makes me feel bad to just keep harping on this, even though I think it's like maybe the dominant storyline in MMA right now, but it just feels like the UFC has lost the room. Like, Throwing out good cards on Fox, exciting fights, everybody goes home happy, nobody watched it. So if we did get a TJ Dillashaw-Demetrius Johnson super fight, where arguably the biggest knock against either of those guys is that nobody kind of cares about them, even though they're both terrific fighters, what's the magnitude of that event in your eyes? Not very great. Yeah. It does not reach very far outside the bubble. But, I mean, it is... For the inside baseball types who really are so deep inside the bubble, it would be huge. It would be like the, one of those events where 200,000 people watch it, but all of them are absolutely enraptured by it. So I think that that's just going to be the situation no matter what in that weight class. And I think, you know, more and more, if it's not Conor McGregor or, you know, John Jones, it's not some of the huge names, that's what you're looking at. Like he, that's the kind of nature of the sport right now, that it's either the hardcores who will watch everything, watch it, or, you know, it's one of those superstar things that people who don't watch fights at all will watch it, and there's less and less middle ground between those, it seems. So it's like a beautiful butterfly. Not everyone is going to see it, but those who do. What'll stop people from seeing the butterfly? Well, not everyone's going to understand the majesty of the butterfly, right? Butterfly, anybody can understand the butterfly. Well, okay, so it's like a, a wonderful beetle. Okay, there you go. A, uh, like a, a rare type of grasshopper that hasn't been seen in these parts <laughs> for thousands of years. And you would just walk on the street and squash it because you have no idea what the hell it means. But to a, to a buggy, a bug expert. What they're called? Buggies? I just made that up right now. To, to a, a shit-eating wild man for bugs. And who, they're out there. Yeah. I know they're out there. I know they are. Uh, they see that and, uh, they're just creaming their jeans as soon as they see that grasshopper. On that note, let's spend a couple minutes talking about Cody Garbrandt, okay. right? Like, I think you brought up the, the main thing about Cody Garbrandt a couple minutes ago in that he beats Dominic Cruz at UFC 207 to win the men's bantamweight title. And at that point, uh, he was kind of regarded as like the hot new young superstar for the UFC. And so it didn't help matters that he turned around, went out and lost his next fight to TJ Dillashaw as hot young superstars are apt to do in this sport. I think we've found uh, at this point, not quite live up to the hype. Uh, and I don't know if you feel like this, 
But I feel like in the wake of UFC 217, as I said at the top of the show, the men's 135-pound division just flat went dark for a while. We just didn't hear about it very much. You look at the uh, the rankings, and you know you got Dominic Cruz, obviously, who just got uh, medically cleared to return and has come out saying he wants the winner of this one. You got Rafael Asuncao, who's like the most under-the-radar elite fighter in the sport, maybe. You got Marlon Moraes doing good stuff. Uh, but then after that, you know, there's not a lot out there. You got John Lineker. Everyone wants a, some, everybody wants to get a call when he's going to fight. But at the same time, we're not itching for him to be the champion. So, Ben, what does this fight mean to Cody Garbrandt? And is there a way that we, like, f- actually fire up some intrigue at bantamweight here instead of, like, continually talking about uh, bringing in a hired gun in Demetrius Johnson to, to try to spice things up? You know, if I'm Cody Garbrandt, you know what I'm wondering right now? How did I get left off that Toyo Tires commercial? Remember Dominant Cruz and TJ Dillashaw come right up to the, the parking spot outside the UFC Performance Institute, and the spot is clearly labeled that you can only park there if you have Toyo Tires because that's a very normal thing that we would all expect to encounter. And they both get there at the same time, and it's Cruz and Dillashaw, and they get out arguing, and it's a great moment of stilted dialogue when TJ Dillashaw says, You have Toyo Tires? I'm not going Toyo Tires as well. <laughs> it's like you could just yeah no that sounds like a natural line that come and then if I'm Cody Garbrandt I'm sitting home watching that and going like what the fuck man me and this guy had the rivalry me and this guy are gonna gonna do it again brother at the pay per view I got the damn neck tattoos and everything I look the part I can't get on there I can't get on the Toyo Tires maybe, commercial maybe Cody Garbrandt's contributions got left on the cutting room floor well that'd be even worse man if you were like. If, if he was supposed to play the Forrest Griffin role yeah. coming in there at the end, and then they were he, like, he you rolls know what? through and he's like, I as a third enjoy Toyo Tires. <laughs> and they were like, we like Forrest's energy a lot better, <laughs> honestly, once we saw it. Sorry about that. Yeah, I mean, if you're Cody Garbrandt, this fight has super high stakes because if you don't win it, it's you start to look like a flash in the pan. And I think that might be unfair to him, especially given his youth and how how much fighting he probably still has left in him. But that's the way it's going to start to look in that division because it's going to be like, all right, you came out there, you beat Dominic Cruz, everybody was going, wow, we we thought Dominic Cruz was unbeatable and you really took it to him all the way through. And then you lose two in a row to TJ Dillashaw and it's kind of like, oh yeah, remember Cody Garbrandt, neck tattoo guy? Like the fall off in status is kind of immense. And then it's like you're going to be the guy sitting around waiting for there to be a new champion or for something weird to happen just so you can get another shot at it. Yeah. And did you watch the split screen video between these two guys yes, on did. UFC yeah. on Fox? Or I was a little surprised how long it took to heat up uh, uh, between Well, yeah, them. John Anik is out there like broadcast dentist pulling teeth out of these guys <laughs> trying to get them to say something. And uh, Cody Garbrandt is like, I'm going to knock out TJ Dillashaw and then I'm going to give him an immediate rematch and we're going to have the trilogy. And I was just like, really? You're saying that like before the fight telling me? best case scenario if i'm a, a cody garbs fan is that we're doing this thing a third time that's the that's the high watermark for what i can hope for here yeah i mean i guess i i, I get that it's nice to have a vision it's nice to be able to lay out for somebody here's what's going to happen um i mean maybe what you want to do is knock out tj dillashaw and then ask uh Dominic Cruz, what's up, or something. But I kind of like T.J. Dillashaw's idea better of knocking out Cody Garbrandt and then going to fight Demetrius Johnson. But that's laying out a vision I can really get behind. Yeah, see, that's exciting. Cody Garbrandt, maybe not quite with the vision of that. He can work on it. 
Let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff this week? Well, I know you noticed at some point during the commentary of UFC on Fox 30 where John Anik is trying to make a point about Calgary and about how there being a little bit of an altitude thing uh, and that, you know, it's not like it's in Denver or Mexico City or anything. He said, you know, the, the elevation here does take a toll on you. And he says to Daniel Cormier, his broadcast partner, something along the lines of, I don't know about you, but my treadmill workout in the hotel was a little bit rough today. Uh, and then there's a little bit of a pause as if Daniel Cormier is thinking about how honest he wants to be in his response to that. And then he says, yeah, I'm going to be honest with you, man. It hasn't been a treadmill workout for me in a little while. And there's not going to be. And you're like, oh, yeah, Daniel Cormier just coming off heavyweight title fight and long training camp for that fight. You're not getting Daniel Cormier's ass on a treadmill for shit right now. Yeah. I'm just saying I've never related to Daniel Cormier so much in my life. That's why everybody loves him. He's not, he's not hiking up the sweatpants and getting on a hotel treadmill if he doesn't have to. No, just saying. Ben, uh, so this week I'm just saying I was watching the uh, Alexander Hernandez OAM fight, the first fight on the main card here of UFC on Fox 30. One of the first things I noticed was the old guy sitting in the front row in the crazy shirt. And I thought to myself, that's got to be somebody's dad, right? Like that's got to be one of these fighters' dads. Or maybe he's like an old-time Calgary promoter who helped grease the skids for the UFC to get into the building. So they rewarded him with front row seats. And then a couple minutes later I was like, is that the hitman? <laughs> Is that Bret Hart? Sure enough, Ben, one of the icons of my childhood, Bret the Hitman Hart, sitting down there at ringside, uh, looking like Mr. Glass from the uh, the upcoming M. Night Shyamalan Mr. Glass movie with the gray hair piled all over the place and the crazy shirt. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. If you- Bret Hart is out here making us both feel old. We we saw Bret Hart at a pro wrestling event here in Missoula a couple summers ago, and I'm just saying, if you had to watch Bret Hart get up out of his seat and walk to the bathroom, you'd probably think he was Mr. Glass then as well. Making us both feel old. Anyway, that's going to do it uh, this week for the Co-Main Event Podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at UFC 227. Then I imagine we will have a, a just another turnaround, right? No, we got a break. The next UFC event is August 25th. Justin Gaethje against James Vick. That one's going down Lincoln, Nebraska, where all the big stuff happens. You know, maybe we should think about doing. Maybe we do a brunch of champions this Friday morning uh, before UFC 227. Maybe we should. I'm going to have to check my schedule. You check your I'm schedule. I'm going to do a soft yes right now. <laughs> I hate a soft yes. That's going to do it for now. We are done. We are through. We are out. Better not been anything weird happen this move on, doll. That's all I'm going to say. We've been taking good care of it. It was in with the other stuffies in our giant box full of stuff, the giant toy box. And I don't know she was in there with Elsa. So it means that it has like three different kinds of food attached to it. Well, you're not getting it out of here without it.